It's Tuesday, April 24th, and this is The Daily Dive. The residents of Nashville can rest now that Travis Ranking has been captured after being on the run for 34 hours. Despite a number of incidents that showed him to be mentally unstable, he was still in possession of guns and used them to kill four at an Antioch Waffle House. His father, Jeffrey Ranking, took possession of his guns when officers came to confiscate them after an incident at the White House. He has acknowledged giving them back to Travis, but did he also violate federal law by returning them to his mentally unstable son? We will speak with Dave Boucher, investigative reporter for The Tennessean, for more on that. Also, following the recent news that no one will be criminally charged in the 2016 death of Prince by accidental fentanyl overdose, and a recent advisory from the Surgeon General urging more Americans to carry the opioid antidote, naloxone, we ask the question, what do we do when we encounter someone overdosing from opiates? We'll speak to certified drug and alcohol counselor, Todd Zalkins. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As they're walking through the woods, one of our detectives, uh, Kyle Williams, uh, noticed a person, a suspect in the front, uh, in front of him. Uh, as he was walking forward, he, the suspect turned around and Detective Williams saw his face and realized that that is the suspect we were looking for. After a 34-hour manhunt, Nashville police have said that Travis Ranking has been arrested. They caught him in a wooded area less than a mile from the scene of the shooting where he killed four. After getting a tip from a local woman and construction workers, detectives spotted Ranking and took him into custody. When they captured him, he had a black backpack with a loaded silver handgun. Ranking has been charged with four counts of homicide after opening fire at an Antioch Waffle House. While the community can rest now, there seem to be many warning signs that Travis Ranking should not be armed and needed mental health help. Joining us now is Dave Boucher, investigative reporter for The Tennessean. Dave, there seemed to be a number of incidents where it was clear that Travis Ranking was experiencing mental health problems. Um, let's run through a few of those. I know there was a couple of occasions where his guns were being taken away from him, once by his father and then once when the FBI came to take them away. Uh, and then they released them back to his father. Um, so let's start with uh, this swimming pool incident. Sure. So there is a, a police report from Illinois. Um, Ryan King is, is originally from a small town in, in, in central Illinois. There's a police report um, from June of 2017 that shows um, Ryan King threatened someone with an AR-15, so a, an assault-style weapon. Um, at the time, police say that Ryan King was wearing a pink dress. He threatened this person, put the gun into his car, then drove to the city pool. He dove into the city pool, hopped out of the pool, and exposed himself, according to, to police reports. Now, no one decided to press charges at the pool, and so the police reports don't indicate that there was any sort of um, arrest or um, appearance before a judge, anything like that. Did they speak to him or his father after that incident? They did. The police contacted um, Ryan King's father, and at the time, uh, his father said, quote, a while back, he took three rifles and a handgun away and locked them up when Travis was having problems. Right. This so, was like a self-imposed punishment. And we don't know what those problems were, if he was referring to something different. No, the, the problems have been pretty vague um, in, in, in the police reports. They, they tend not to, to ascribe any specific issue or a problem per se. They, instead, they'll describe, for example... Um, the police responded to an incident where uh, Ryan King said uh, that he heard dogs barking or people barking at him outside of his house. So, so they describe what, um, what some people might 
say were, were issues that, that Ryan King experienced, but they don't you know, assign a specific type of issue. There was another incident where uh, he said that the singer Taylor Swift was uh, hacking him or following him, trying to get in contact with him. And the police spoke with uh, him and his parents at that time as well, right? Yeah, they, they responded um, to uh, a scene where, where Ryan King told them about Swift and, and frustrations that he, he described about Swift. Um, and at the time, the, the police took Ron King to a local hospital for, for what they deemed an evaluation. Police reports don't indicate the results of that evaluation. Uh, they, they don't appear to show any sort of arrest at the time, though. And then there was a, another incident where he actually went to the White House. He crossed a few barriers trying to get a, a meeting with the president. Uh, we heard um, from, from law enforcement here in Nashville that in July of 2017, the U.S. Secret Service arrested Ryan King. Uh, they say that he was trying to gain access to a restricted area. Um, a report from, from the scene says that, that Ron King tried to get into the White House and said that he needed to speak with the president. The Secret Service says, no, you can't get in. He continued to try to get in, at which point he was taken into custody by the U.S. Secret Service. And then the FBI got involved. That's when the situation happened where they went to take away his guns. I think the report said that Travis was willingly surrendering the guns, but that his father asked to keep them because he was a legal uh, cardholder there in Illinois. The White House incident happened in July. In August, in late August, um, Illinois State Police, working with the FBI, went to um, Ron, the business that Ron King's father owns in Illinois and met with Travis and Travis's father. They asked to, to have those weapons. Apparently, according to the police report, Travis complied and turned over four weapons, including the AR-15 that Nashville police believe was used in the shooting at the Waffle House on Sunday. Um, as you noted, though, the records indicate that the weapons were, quote-unquote, turned over to, uh, to law enforcement, but that uh, Travis Ranking's father actually took possession of those weapons because, as you said, he had a valid uh, Illinois um, license that allowed him to uh, maintain possession of those guns. What do you need to have to have one of these licenses, these firearm, what are they called, firearm owner identification cards? That's right, and it's it's under the it's under the, the state firearm owner uh, identification card act. Um, it's it's not it's it's very different than what is called a concealed carry permit or a, a license to allow to, to carry a, a weapon on on with you when you go somewhere in Illinois. And this is a state specific law. Uh, you uh, need to have one of these uh, cards in order to purchase or own a weapon. Uh, and so the parameters for that are are pretty broad. Um, somebody needs to need to be 21 years old or you need to have a parent who already has a license sign off um, if, if, you're, if you're under that age. Um, you need to not have been uh, adjudicated mentally defective. And a couple of other, again, like broad parameters, um, not be addicted to, to, to narcotics. Um, it's, it's unclear, you know, how often um, there's some sort of legal review of the application process or what exactly, at least unclear to me, what exactly Illinois law enforcement do in order to verify that the information is accurate on the application. But again, it's a, it's a pretty broad uh, pretty broad parameters that seemingly many people would qualify for if they applied for one of these identification cards. Back to uh, his father, Jeffrey Ranking. At one of the press conferences, uh, an ATF agent had said that he doesn't know it may be possible that the father may have violated federal law by giving him his guns back uh, in that instance after the FBI came to, to take them away after the, after the White House incident. Um, what do we know about that? Yeah, that's a that's a, a new development that came up Monday afternoon. Um, an ATF agent, after uh, Travis Ryan King was was taken into custody, said, "If you transfer weapons knowingly to a person, 
that is prohibited, that could potentially be a violation of, of federal law. And again, that's the idea being that if somebody gives guns to somebody who's not allowed to have those guns, then that could be a violation of federal law. However, our understanding of state law shows that there is nothing that would have prevented Ron King from having a gun in Tennessee, even though the state of Illinois said he couldn't have a gun. So we're still trying to see what federal laws that ATF agent, agent um, were, were referencing. But this is kind of a kind of a, a, a gray area in gun laws because you're getting into different states having different laws on the books about what they uh, what they say uh, needs to be met in order for someone to keep a gun or, or not keep a gun. And again, we're still trying to, to dig into the federal laws that he may, that the father may have violated. And it's a little different, you know, with uh, other recent shootings. There were cases where the FBI might have dropped the ball and didn't follow up leads, didn't take away guns from people. In this case, officers did their due diligence. They made the attempt, but they released them back to the, the father, which was legal. That's exactly what Illinois uh, law enforcement have told us. Now, now, we don't know, and we're still looking at how... Um, this idea that, that uh, Travis Ryan King's um, card was revoked, how, how one enforces that, right? right. So if, if law enforcement allows the father to take those guns, how do they then ensure that the moment they leave, that the father doesn't just give those guns back to the son? We still don't know the exact timeline of when the, the guns were returned to the son. If the son was still in Illinois at the time and the father gave those guns back to the son, then that, in theory, again, in theory, could be a law violation. Um, there's there's a caveat in Illinois state law that says um, somebody, a parent, can give a gun to a, a child, even if the child doesn't have an identification card, if it's a quote-unquote bona fide gift. So, uh, again, I think there's still ongoing investigations to see the legality of what happened and just the time frame of what happened, but there's still a lot of questions. Dave Boucher, investigative reporter for the Tennessean. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. Finally, names of the victims have been released in the Nashville shooting. Tareen Sanderlin, who was an employee at the restaurant, Joe Perez of Nashville, D'Ebony Groves, a 21-year-old student at Nashville's Belmont University, and Aquila De Silva, who was a rap artist and music producer. Those injured in the shooting were Tiana Wagner and Sharita Henderson. Also wounded was James Shaw Jr., who was being hailed as a hero. He burned his hand, grabbing the hot muzzle of the assault weapon as he wrestled the gun away from Travis Ranking. In a press conference after the shooting, he said he doesn't consider himself a hero and saying, quote, he was going to have to work to kill me. I'm not a hero. I'm just a regular person. And I think, <laughs> and I think um, anybody could have did um, what I did. On April 21, 2016, Prince died from an overdose of fentanyl. The evidence suggests that Prince took counterfeit Vicodin containing fentanyl on or about April 21, 2016. Unfortunately, the subject counterfeit Vicodin pills are an exact imitation of real Vicodin pills, but the counterfeit pills contain the potentially deadly opioid fentanyl. Joining us now is Todd Zalkins. He's a certified drug and alcohol counselor. He's a speaker on opioid recovery and awareness, and he's an award-winning filmmaker of The Long Way Back, which you can see on Hulu, Amazon, and Google Play. We're going to talk about uh, the opioid epidemic. It's one of the deadliest overdose crises in history now. Uh, nearly 64,000 people died of drug overdoses uh, in 2016. About two-thirds of those were linked to opioids such as fentanyl, heroin, prescription painkillers. How did this get so bad? 
Well, we can actually trace this back to back to the late '90s when when OxyContin was essentially labeled as something that wasn't addictive. And you know, I personally am, am in recovery, and OxyContin is what brought me to my knees personally. And you know, as a family crisis interventionist, I I do a great deal of travel to the uh, East Coast where. That place has just been ravaged, just ravaged by by this crisis, and and so you know this thing it, it didn't happen overnight, right? And this is very personal to you. Like you said, you you battled with addiction for many years. You also lost a dear friend, Bradley Noel. He was the singer of Sublime. He died of a heroin overdose. That's correct. In 1996, I was about six years into my pill addiction at the time, and uh, OxyContin was just around the corner for me, and. You know, I was the last phone call that he tried to make before he took his lethal dose, and it, uh, you know, it wrecked all of us, and myself included, and I was unable to wake up to take the call, and, uh, you know, he passed away, unfortunately, and it broke all of our hearts, and, you know, I still had about 11 more years of, of my addiction to grow and grow and take a hold of me, and uh, like I said, the OxyContin, it, it absolutely just ripped me to shreds, and uh, and I got so I got clean and sober just as the epidemic was really starting to kind of, the, the bubble was about ready to burst. Yeah, the Surgeon General just issued a warning saying that friends and family of people who are abusing these drugs or just taking high doses of opioids for pain, that everybody should be carrying naloxone or Narcan uh, to help you know, counteract, counteract I, this if somebody go, know, goes I, into it. I absolutely it. agree with that. If, 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 you're, you know, if you're amongst company with people who are at high risk and certainly who have who have a history of, of overdosing, Narcan uh, is a very, very effective uh, method of, of saving someone's life. The nasal spray is one method of, 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 uh, of the Narcan method, and there's, there's also an injection that most medics use. When it comes to using that particular uh, method to bring someone back, if it's a fentanyl overdose, you've got to get to them very, very quickly. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. How long do we have uh, between noticing someone is overdosing and till the time that you know they, they might pass? Well, let's let's talk about that really quick. You, you know, it, again, if if it's a fentanyl overdose, you have a very very short window. I mean, um, a couple of minutes at most. Heroin heroin tends to you can you can it can be a little bit longer, and so it all depends upon the individual. It's got to be very, very fast uh, because the fentanyl can just floor you and everything just stops so quickly. But to come back to Narcan, it is extremely uh, effective at uh, at bringing someone back. Uh, however, when you bring someone back, you, you don't just stop right there. You, you've got to get them into a hospital for monitoring. You You can't allow them to use once they're brought back because the addict, by the way, is going to want to use again. Believe it or not, they're going to want to get loaded again. It will bring them back you know, into the world and breathing again. It actually brings on a massive withdrawal. They've got to not use for that day. I mean, and, and so often, many times they do, and they overdose again. You said you do a family inver- interventions as well. How do you help? One of the biggest things that, that families don't want to do is actually take that step because the families are just on eggshells and they're in so much fear as to what the reaction is going to be. And so when it comes to crisis intervention, it takes a lot of courage for a family to you know, call upon someone like myself to actually intervene. And interventions are more than 90% successful when properly orchestrated. And, and we're very, very successful at getting people into treatment. And uh, the rest is, is certainly up to them if they want to uh, grab a hold of recovery. But what I would suggest to, to families and people who love someone who is suffering is to 
is to have a voice and and to make and, and to tell that person that that you care and and to take some type of action to uh, to get them help. Uh, briefly, back to the Surgeon General's warning about having the naloxone on hand. How do we administer that properly? I would like to share with everybody to, to simply go to narcan.com. It's N-A-R-C-A-N.com. And the, the website is easy, you know, easily to navigate. And you can even punch in your zip code. It can first off share you share with you exactly where you can where you can find Narcan. Okay. And and there's uh, there's videos on the website. It can share with you it shares with you how to administrate it. It's fairly easy, you know. It's it's a it's a pretty good push into each nostril and the individual. If you get them in time, they're going to respond. With regards to the case of Prince, uh, the EMT in that situation said that he was surprised that he needed two doses of uh, the Narcan. Is there too much or too little that you can give to somebody? Or knowing what I know about the toxicology report is that um, it's important that we talk about this really quick, and that is. Narcan is not going to be effective when there's also some uh, other coinciding drugs, which which I do know to be true that that in Prince's case, there was also some benzodiazepam within his bloodstream. So there wasn't just opioids that, that, that was, you know, that were in his system. So, you know, benzodiazepam are things such as, you know, Xanax and Valium, things of that nature. So if you have a, a lethal combination of those two, you know, sometimes the, the, the Narcan is not going to bring someone back. And uh, finally, Todd, if you can tell us a little bit more about your film, The Long Way Back. This is actually about you, about your life. Yeah, it's yeah. Thank you for asking. It, it's actually about my 17 year plummeting into my, you know, my addiction after, you know, it, it tells a lot about a backstory about the, the Long Beach music scene and, and when we lost Bradley Knoll Sublime and how things got worse and then I, how things got better after my recovery. And it's actually a full a full circle story because years later, after I became an interventionist, I was called upon to. I was able to answer the call when when uh, Bradley's dad, uh, fondly known as Jim Papanol. Uh, he he got a hold of me um, because Bradley's son Jacob Knoll was suffering with alcoholism and drug addiction, and and I was able to help him get clean and sober, and he's he's thriving today in his life, and it was uh, it's been a beautiful beautiful journey with him to see him grow and and change, and so it also the film also addresses uh, on an educational level, it's it's meant to help uh, people become aware and uh, of the uh, of the severity of uh, opioid epidemic, and so it's it, it covers a lot of layers. It's available on Hulu and Amazon and Google Play. And so, uh, yeah, I appreciate you asking that. Todd Zalkins, thank you very much for joining us. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.